in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, and we will be looking at verses 1 through 6. Last week, we had a wonderful uh, sermon and exposition on uh, the various ways in which God has commanded us to walk and a survey of various instances in the book of Ephesians. I want to take a snapshot of one of those particular passages in Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter, I'm sorry, 4, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It is a pivot point in the scriptures in this book. Out of the six chapters... He begins in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let's bow together as we come before his word. Our Father in heaven, we come before your holy word. And we ask, O oh God, that you would produce within us a reverence for you speak through the pages of Scripture. So help us, O oh Father, now. Fill us with your Spirit. Grant to us understanding. May you open our eyes that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a boy in elementary school, one of the things that they allowed some students to do is to be in charge of the front office for a month. It was seen as such a great privilege. It was seen as a real high honor. You'd learn to direct visitors in the school. You'd answer the phone. You'd give the secretaries a break so they could have lunch. It was a real privilege. We would go during our recess or whatnot, and you'd be in charge of the front office. There was a lot of responsibility answering the phone and directing those who were adults and things like this. And kids felt very important. What a privilege it is to be in charge of the school office. And one of the things that we all learn comes from this general principle. It's something that Jesus taught in Luke 12:48, For he says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be Required, And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. And that's in the context of being given spiritual privilege, of which we have been given a lot. And that comes along. It's the same adage that people will say, with privilege comes responsibility. If you're a teenager, someday you're going to ask your parents to give you car keys, maybe even car 
And you know, as very well as your parents, or perhaps you may not know yet, with that privilege of driving comes the responsibility of fixing that car, of putting gas into that car, of maintaining that car, of driving safely. With that privilege comes responsibility. Some of you play on sports teams and you know that you have the privilege of representing your school. You have the privilege of playing on that team, but with it comes responsibility. You've got to show up for practice. You've got to work hard. You've got to perform, otherwise you're nixed from the team. With privilege come responsibility. The Lord has given to us a church facility. That's a privilege. And with it comes the responsibility to keep it in good condition, to use it for the Lord, to care for it. In fact, nearly every responsibility or every privilege, I should say, comes with some type of responsibility that's tied to it. And the greater the privilege it is, the greater the responsibility. The same is said of the Christian Of you and I as believers, as followers of the Lord Jesus, what a privilege it is, what a responsibility as well. And so as we look at this book, this book of Ephesians, that is what Paul outlines here. As I mentioned, chapter 4 is really the dividing line. As many of his letters are written, the first half of the book, the first three chapters out of six, Paul outlines theologically and doctrinally Fundamentals of who we are, our position in Christ, who defines us, what defines us. And the last three chapters, four, five and six, talk about what we're to do, our privilege, how we're to behave, particularly how we are to walk. That is chapter four, verse one. Therefore. That is why that is therefore. It is because of all of these things, the privilege we have of being a believer leads us to a life of responsibility. The position that we have as a Christian leads us to the practice that we are to do. And the responsibility has to do with living a life that is consistent with being who we are. So we look at verse one and we look at the. Walk that we are called to. The walk that we are called to. Because Paul says here, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have received. I don't know here what Paul says. He says he is a prisoner of whom? Of the Lord. He's a prisoner, but he's not a prisoner of Rome. That's not how he sees himself. He doesn't see himself as in chains because he's a prisoner of Rome. He is a prisoner of the Lord. He's been in prison because of God's calling of what he has been called to do. Paul's been preaching. Paul's been preaching and teaching the word of God. He's been faithful and he's imprisoned by the will of God. And he's not feeling sorry for himself. He's not bemoaning his situation. He's not wallowing in some self-pity. He did the work of God and he's in prison. One of the things that characterized the life of Paul, as well as the other apostles, is their level of self-sacrifice for the kingdom. Their level of self-sacrifice for the kingdom. Like Christ, Paul and the apostles were willing to sacrifice their well-being, 
to sacrifice their safety, to sacrifice their time, to sacrifice their own convenience, their very lives for the sake of the gospel. And there are many Christians around the world who risk their lives every week. We gather here in freedom, but people around the world, they gather sometimes in fear, sometimes hidden Because they might be ostracized or they may lose their jobs or they may be arrested. They may be disowned by their family if they were to come. They risk a lot just to worship the Lord. And I've wondered about us. What would we do? What would we do if this particular city were the same way? Would you, for example, be willing to be baptized If it meant that you might be disowned from your family? Would you attend church? If it meant that you might lose your job and be in prison? Would you say that you're a Christian if it meant that you might be beaten? Or might be threatened with death if you didn't recant? People around the world face that. Paul was willing to face imprisonment. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself daily and take up his cross and follow me. And that phrase, take up his cross, very well known what Jesus meant because Rome had lined the streets with people on crucifixes because of a uprising and rebellion. So when the Jews went to Jerusalem, they would very well know this is what Rome does if you turn against them. And Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, he must be willing to take up his cross and follow me. I remember teaching alongside of, a, of an African man at a pastor's conference when I was in Africa. And even though he had less training, even though he had less education, even though he had less experience, his commitment to do what it would take To help train these other pastors was tremendous. I was sharing with these pastors uh, about the qualifications of an elder and the responsibility to study the Word and to take that time so that they could teach and divide the Word of God properly so that they would be a workman who did not need to be ashamed but correctly could handle the Word of Truth. And all of these pastors, it's not as if they have some formal training. In fact, many of them were just lay individuals. And one of them said, who are are you to expect us to do such a thing? We don't have time to study. We're farmers and have families and work all day. We don't have that kind of time. How could you expect, how could you ask us to do something like that? My fellow friend who was teaching alongside of me was fellow Ugandan and he said he said you know when I first began in the ministry he talked to his fellow pastors and he said I, I, I dug ditches I dug ditches I dug ditches so that I could make a living I shoveled dirt It's not as if he had one or two kids or he was single. He had a number of kids, I think five or six or more. Everyone was silent. Because they knew that that was one of the simplest, lowliest of jobs, simply so he could make a living so that he could invest himself in the things of God. 
The question is, would you be willing to dig ditches? Be willing to dig ditches so that you could serve God? You know, when we move next week, we're going to have a church, a fairly sizable church. We're not going to have a custodian. And I know the children's ministry, they're going to divide up the responsibilities. Are you willing to stay behind for an extra 15 minutes to vacuum your child's classroom? To empty the garbage that's outside or to clean the nursery sink? Or whatever it may take to rake the leaves? Whatever it is, are you willing to dig dirt for the Lord? Do we expect others to do it for us? If you're a youth, do you expect others to pick up after you, to clean up after you, or are you going to be one who is responsible that others would say, that young man or that young lady is tremendously helpful, a hard worker for God. And it was such an encouragement to all of those who were there. I realized some of you had to work or some of you were out of town or whatever, but for those that came, it was such an encouragement See, 50 or 80 or 90 of us all together running around doing various things and seeing the tremendous amount of work and not relying on one or two people who were afraid simply because they're retired and the expectations might be higher. (laughs) That's an offering to God that you gave of your time to come and to serve. And we praise God for that. Paul sacrificed immensely sacrifice of his life and he saw himself as a prisoner of the Lord and he says he implores us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we have received and the manner of worthiness is that of a balanced scale that's where the word comes from this idea the root meaning of balancing the scales and the idea behind this whole thing is that because of who you are you are a Christian now live like it no hypocrisy here no dual thinking where oh I'm going to do all of these things outwardly on Sunday and put a smile on my face and then the rest of the week it's going to be different no see it's easy to spot hypocrisy in others Hard to see it in ourselves oftentimes. So here he specifically lays out how it is we are to walk in a manner worthy. What does it look like? And the first one, he says, is the nature of a worthy life, which is humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness. And the word humility, it literally means to think or judge with lowliness. To think or judge with lowliness. In fact, the word humility is really a, a, uh, more of a Christian concept because John Wesley noted and first noted that the Romans nor the Greeks had a word for humility. They didn't, that wasn't a part of their vocabulary because in the Greco-Roman world, to be humble was considered to have a slave-like quality. To have a slave-like quality. Slaves had nothing but an attitude of servitude. When the master asked something of the slave, they needed to do it immediately without question. No matter how menial, no matter how demeaning, they were to be obedient. 
What was admired among the Romans was to be great souled, to be people who were strong and egotistical and prideful. The characteristic of a humility was that of a pitiful, weak, wimp. That's how they saw it. And when Christianity first came in and they propagated being humble, it was used derogatorily of Christians. Those humble but foolish people, they would communicate. That's not Christ. Christ humbled himself. It says in Philippians 2, he humbled himself coming down as God in the form of man. The eternal God who humbled himself that we might know God. That is what we are to do as well. Put aside our pride, to put aside our self-sufficiency, to put aside our independence in order that others might know. It is not this whole idea of propagating our self-esteem or having a positive self-image so that we have a greater pride in ourselves. No. John MacArthur writes, quote, Most of us will admit that we tend to be so self-oriented that we see many things, first of all, and sometimes only in relation to ourselves. But the person who has the word of Christ abiding in him richly, the one who saturates his mind with divine wisdom and truth will ask, quote, How does this affect God? How will it reflect on him? What does he want me to do with this problem or this blessing? How can I most please and honor him in this? Unquote. He tries to see everything through God's divine grid. That attitude is the basis and mark of spiritual maturity. With David, the mature Christian can say, quote, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand, Psalm 16.8. I know for myself, I often fail to ask myself some of these questions. But that is what we're to ask. How will it reflect on the testimony that I give for the Lord? How will it reflect upon God? What does God think of what I do? It doesn't have to do with personality either. Some people who are quiet or shy can be just as self-focused and self-centered and self-oriented as one who is verbose and loud. Humility is often outward-focused. We look and see the needs of others because we're less concerned about ourselves. Pride is often inward focus. It was Satan's pride that caused him to fall. Ezekiel chapter 28. I will, he said, Satan said, I will be like the Most High. I will. And all of these things in which he asserted his own pride, I will. It's Adam and Eve's pride that caused them to be cast out of the Garden of Eden who had said, I will. Have my eyes open. I want, I want, I want. Humility, on the other hand, is a virtue that is commended by God. As the Lord says in Luke 18, For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. The second 
attitude, aside from humility, that is characteristic of one who is to walk worthy is that of gentleness. It means mild-spirited or self-controlled. It is power that is under control. Because a person who is gentle isn't a fighter. They're not pugilistic. They're not always trying to get back and fight. doesn't mean that they're weak. But it's more characteristic of like a horse that has been broken. That horse can still run as fast and be as strong as it was before. But it is under control of the rider because that horse has been broken. It is like a lion that has been tamed. 12 verse 3, book of Numbers, the Bible tells us that Moses was very humble more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Yet, it was he who confronted Pharaoh, a gentle person, not threatening or feared, somebody who promotes safety and security. You know, a gentle person, you can feel as if you can go up to them and talk to them about whatever is on your mind. They're gentle in how they speak, gentle in how they conduct themselves. They're approachable. That is the second characteristic. To be humble, to be gentle, and thirdly, to be patient. And fourthly, to show tolerance and love. Patience. Patience. Means long-tempered or long-suffering. Person who is patient endures difficult and negative circumstances with godly character. Noah was a godly man. He was a patient man. Depending on how you interpret that particular section of text, I understand it is he spent 120 years building that ark in an area where there was no body of water close by and an earth that had never seen rain like that for sure, if any at all. Abraham was a patient man who relied upon God. It was at the age of 75 that he was told he was going to have a child. He didn't have a child for another 25 years. That's how patient he was to wait upon God. But the fourth quality is that of showing tolerance and love. Showing tolerance and love. Once again, this is agape love. Agape love. If you turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, very well-known passage. Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, which is often read at weddings, describes this type of love that we are to show. We show tolerance in this type of love. 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 4. The text reminds us of what true love is. For it says, love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what it means to love. That's what it means to love. We love when 
we're faced with the shortcomings of others. We're not jealously comparing ourselves to others. We're not bragging or arrogant. We're not always up to argue. Many marriages are tolerant of one another. But the question is, do they love? Do they love? Love isn't glad over sin. Love rejoices. It gives others the benefit of the doubt. Thinks the best of others. And in short, love seeks the best of another person for God's glory. The good of someone else for the glory of God. Not simply what makes someone else happy. Because what makes somebody else happy may not be to the glory of God. Love wants God's best for someone else. It might be tough sometimes. It might be kind at other times. It loves and endures all things in all circumstances. And because we are sinners, there will always be people who are difficult to love. Because we are sinners, maybe they're relatives, maybe they're friends, maybe they're co-workers, maybe they're family members that we have a difficult time loving because they rub us the wrong way. God doesn't call us just to love people who are the same as us, who are the same socioeconomic background, who come from the same neighborhood or whatever it may be. We're called to love people. Undoubtedly, there's going to be new people who will come through the doors of the church and we're to love them. We're to show them kindness, to show them hospitality. Are we willing to love them? Are we willing to show that love to them? Or do we say, you know what? I've got my own deal. I'm not the social type. I've got my own schedule. Or I don't like strangers. They're strange. (laughs) It's not my fault. It's God's. I was created this way. I'm shy. What do we say? Is that what Jesus would say? Jesus say, oh, let the children, let the children play with the other children. I, I don't get along with children. I don't relate well with kids. Do they say, well, you know, let those Samaritans, those Samaritans, they need to meet other Samaritans who are like them because they have more in common with one. I don't think Jesus would say anything like that. That's why he reached out to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. That's why he gave the parable of the what? The person who was injured because he was robbed. And who helps that man? A Samaritan. I want to encourage you as we relocate that don't be that type. Be a person who shows love. Don't just huddle with your friends and say, you know what, I I, I don't know them. Introduce yourself. Make a new friend. Reach out to somebody. Maybe there are people even here that you don't know. You've never met. They've been here for six months. Just say hi. Introduce yourself. Tell them about yourself. We are to be people who show tolerance and love, not just to those who are a part of our immediate family, but those that God brings across our path. So we're to be humble if we're to have a worthy walk. We're to be gentle if we're to have a worthy walk. We're to be patient and forbearing, tolerating one another in love. And lastly, we're to strive for unity. Strive for unity. Verse 3. 
being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The idea of being diligent is to make haste. We're to eager, be eager to strive for unity, be eager to keep things together. In the early church, unity was hard to find. You remember the Corinthian church? The Corinthian church was all subdivided. I follow Paul. I follow Paul's. I follow Christ. I'm a whatever. Do this, do that. And they're all in their little separate groups. We are to be eager to keep things together. Eager, whether it's the Hellenistic Jews and the other Jews in the book of Acts, they were always working at trying to keep things together. Divisions are not uncommon in the church, but they often begin with cliques, little groups, factions, people with soapboxes, people with agendas, people with particular things that they want to promote or gossip old grievances that haven't been put away or forgiven. Divisions occur for many reasons. I had a professor, elderly, elderly professor. His name was Dwight Pentecost, J. Dwight Pentecost. I remember him telling us in in class, he told us in class about this church split that happened. It was so serious that each side filed a lawsuit to dispossess the other from the church. Of course, there was such a violation of command. You know that believers are not to sue another believer in 1 Corinthians 6, but the civil, so the civil courts, they threw it out. They threw the case out. And it came to the church court where the judiciary made a decision and awarded one faction of this church control over the church. And the losers had to go down the street or something and begin their own little church. But it all began when an elder of the church received a smaller slice of ham than the child next to him. Rather than overlooking offenses, some people, they go on the offensive and they will cause things to result in conflict and division. You know, one of the studies, a particular magazine discovered that the best, quote-unquote, arguers that are able to bring things together are those that don't point fingers. And according to this particular study, the person who says we the most during an argument often suggests the best solutions. Researchers at the University of Pennsylvania and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill use statistical analysis in the study. 59 couples. Spouses who used second person pronouns, you, tended to have negativity in interactions. Those making use of first-person plural pronouns, we, provided positive solutions to problems. The study concluded that we, users, have a sense of shared interest that spark compromise and other ideas pleasing to both partners. You-sayers, on the contrary, tended to criticize, disagree, justify, and otherwise team with negativity, unquote. In other words, when you're in a discussion or argument with your spouse, what do you say? Do you say, you did this. Do you know when you did? And don't you forget that you... Think of how often you can say that. You. It is we 
We that have a sense of shared community. We that solve problems together. We, when something happens, we share together and we strive for unity because there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And inevitably there will be something that will come up. Some difference between people, whether it be your friends or your family or your co-workers or those that you serve on, even between your children and other children within the church, it is inevitably going to come about because we are all sinners. But we need to say we. Unity comes by looking at ourselves and being humble and gentle and patient, tolerating one another in love, striving to be unified For God is one God, one hope, one faith, one baptism. The passage is not communicating that we are to be unified under any and all circumstances. In fact, right here, it delineates a very doctrinal passage, a very theological passage about one God, one faith, one baptism. This is not some sort of statement that says anybody who believes in anything ought to be unified as one. No, it is not saying we need to be unified under aberrant teaching, but under the truth of God. We are to be unified. The question for us is, how is our walk? How is our walk? How is our testimony for Christ? Do we understand who we are as a child of God so that we can live and have the confidence to live like we ought? You know, many years ago, I worked for the Puget Sound Air Pollution Control Agency. And that agency monitored air quality within the Puget Sound region One day I went out on patrol with one of the officers. We were driving along in a car and we wasn't part of our appointment, but there was a building, a building that uh, an individual was standing on some ladder or something like that. And they were it was not far from the freeway, but they I believe they were sandblasting the side of this building without any cover, without any water to mitigate All of the particulate matter and the dust that was just flying throughout the air. So, my fellow officer, he was an officer, I wasn't, I should say, we pulled over. And he said to me, now, you go out. (laughs) You tell that man to stop working. Cease and desist and... Go. Now, I was deathly nervous. I was just a college kid, skinny little college kid, you know, and I remember I tell you, I just was shaking. I didn't know what it is. Is this my first time out? I mean, actually, they hired me as a kind of a, a researcher. I was supposed to sit at a desk and I was supposed to determine through research how much air pollution is everything from lawnmowers to ships that come in in various counties around the Puget Sound region and calculate that in a big, big, fat book. So to produce. But this, they had me go out on this one day. And so I remember going out and he sent me out of the car. And all I remember was going up to that man. Hi, 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 hi. Excuse me, sir. Hello. After my dismal failure to even garner much attention, the officer comes out of the car and he comes out and he identifies himself and he has that man stand down. 
pulls out his ticket book and he writes that guy a ticket and he says, I'm fining you for such and such, such and such. And you've got to stop. You've got to have this and that. We're with the Puget Sound Air Pollution Control Agency and my friend here is going to sign the ticket. So <laughs> I had to sign. But my problem wasn't in that I was too young or too small. My problem was I didn't know who I was. I didn't know that I was an agent of the government. I didn't know that I had that authority. I didn't know that I could actually tell him to stop. I didn't know who I was. And the same is true of a Christian. We are people who need to remember who we are. We're an ambassador of the king. We're children of God. We are princes and princesses of the Lord Jesus. We will rule and reign with him. The book of Ephesians tells us we are fellow heirs. And someday we will sit and help Christ rule as a service. God has given us all things that give us wisdom to live a godly life. And we're to live consistent with that. There's a Disney movie, you know, called The Princess Diaries. It's about the San Francisco girl. Always made fun of, kind of a misfit. Didn't know how to act. Didn't know how to walk. Somewhat awkward to be around. Having been raised by her, by, only by her mother. She learned that after her father passed away, that he was some... Some important person, and now she was the sole heir of some fictitious kingdom called Genovia. And so the movie chronicles her training, learning how to dress, how to act, how to walk, how to speak like a princess ought to. And that's the same for us. We're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we have received. To be people of God who live as people reflective of Christ. We're called to be Christians. We're to live like Christ. We were those people. The backward, the awkward types, the outcasts. We're living a life that we didn't know how we ought to live. But now God has called us to live this life as royalty. Children of God. Not perfect, but we strive to be. Where do we characterize by that? People who are humble and gentle and patient. People who are tolerant and who love people that other people may not love. And to strive to be one. To be unified because there is one Spirit, one Christ, one Lord, one baptism. So that we, at the end, can live a worthy life. And God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's bow together in prayer. O God in heaven, we give you thanks for the unity we have enjoyed here for many years. We give you thanks because of your grace that we can worship in spirit and in truth. And may we be patient, tolerant. May we be humble and gentle. May we show love to a world that does not understand your great love. In Jesus' name, amen.